Chapter Eleven of the Elephant Club by Dosticks and Oxide. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. Chapter Eleven, The Hamlet Night. Murder most foul, as in the best it is, but this most foul, strange and unnatural. A few days after the events recorded in the last chapter, a new trick was invented to obtain, under false pretenses, the money of the public. A number of needy and seedy individuals, having been told that in England several of the most distinguished literary men in that country had given a few theatrical exhibitions with great success, conceived the plan of exhibiting, in a similar manner, in the city of New York, a number of authors artists and other celebrities admitting the public at twenty-five cents per head that it might look less like a humbug and by way of hiding as far as possible the swindle which was only too transparent after all it was announced that the living poets and painters would be shown all alive in secure cages undergoing a periodical stirring up by the keeper and being benevolently fed in the presence of the spectators afterward preparations had been made to secure the services of the biggest authors the most notorious painters the largest sized sculptures the most melodious poets and the most sanguinary editors the country could produce the anxious world expected nothing less than to see the author of thanatopsis appear as hamlet in black tights and a slouched hat and he who invented evangeline and hiawatha come on as the ghost with a pasteboard helmet and a horse-hair beard who should be laertes but he who sculped the greek slave or what editor could play the king like the democratic conductor of the tribune who in assuming the crown was to doff the white hat positively for one night only the queen of denmark would of course be represented by the architect of uncle tom's cabin whose familiarity with courts and royalty would enable her to invest the character with lifelike interest the public had made up its mind to be content with no ophelia except ruth hall for no one else could play the crazy scene so admirably but alas for the expectations of the misguided public the illustrious individuals aforesaid would not come and consequently the public were compelled to witness the consummation of the dreadful tragedy by authors whose works they had never heard of painters whose productions were unknown to the world and editors whom a close investigation resolved into obscure scribblers to this literary exhibition overdale wagstaff and john spout resolved to go overdale to give the necessary explanations wagstaff to make a transcript of his friend's valuable remarks and john spout himself an amateur artist to see the celebrated men of his own profession whose contributions to art had been so persistently kept out of sight the performance was to take place in the academy of music a building designed and completed by a diabolically ingenious architect who endeavoured to construct a theatre in such a manner that one half the audience could not hear and the other half could not see and who succeeded to admiration our friends obtained seats in that part of the house where they could see though it was not possible to hear a word after a great many preliminary flourishes and false starts by the members of the orchestra they set off as nearly together as they could in obedience to the frantic gestures of the leader who flourished his fiddle-bow with as much energy and vindictiveness as if he had been insanely endeavouring to kill mosquitoes with it in forty different directions at once 
finally the curtain went up amid the uproarious applause of the assembled multitude interrupted only by a small boy in the gallery who hissed like a whole flock of enraged wild geese having been stationed there especially for the performance of this sibilant duty by an avenging washerwoman to whom one of the amateurs owed four and sixpence his dissenting voice was however soon hushed by the police who put him out and didn't give him his money back after which the exhibition proceeded to give a full description of one half of the ridiculous performances indulged in by these deluded persons to tell of the new readings which they gave and the old readings which they didn't give to relate how carefully they avoided the traps and with what commendable caution they kept away from the footlights to give an idea of the bedlamitish ingenuity they had displayed in the selection of wardrobe how each one had put on the most inappropriate articles imaginable and how they could not have been more incongruously attired if they had been all dressed in sheep's grey breeches and straw hats to dilate upon the disasters which befell the said wardrobe how the tunics caught in wings and the shoulder cloaks got singed by sidelights how the ladies trains were in everybody's way and their feathers in everybody's eyes how in their confusion when they painted their faces they put the wrong colours in the wrong places and some of them went on with white cheeks chalked lips and eyebrows coloured a bright vermilion how the gilt crowns got bent and battered until they looked like ancient milk pans with the bottoms melted out how the flannel ermine on the regal calico robes got greasy and looked like tripe how the wax pearls melted and the glass ones broke how the soups painted their whiskers uneven and got their wigs on wrong side before how some of them couldn't get the armour on at all but how one enterprising individual having succeeded to his satisfaction came on to deliver a message with his sandals in his hand his helmet on one foot his breastplate on the other and his leg pieces strapped on his shoulders to tell how the ghost got chilly and played the last scene in an overcoat and proved that he was a substantial native american ghost by making two extemporaneous speeches in excellent english to the audience to do full justice to the miscellaneous assortment of legs then and there congregated and relate how some were bow legs and some were shingle legs and some were broomstick legs some were wiry legs and some were shoulder of mutton legs to give an accurate relation of the various expedients resorted to to remedy the most noticeable defects in these legs and state that some were padded on the sides and some at the ankles and how in not a few instances the padding slipped away from its original position thereby putting the calves on the shins and causing the knees to resemble deformed india-rubber footballs and to give a reliable history of the unheard-of antics indulged in by the said fantastic legs after their symmetry had been perfected by the means just written how some went crooked some sideways and some wouldn't go at all how some minced with short steps like a racking pony and others stepping along as if they had seven league boots on how some moved with convulsive hitches as if they were clockwork legs and the springs were out of order how some worked spasmodically up and down in the same place and didn't get along at all as if they were legs which had struck for higher wages and how others dashed ahead as if they did not intend to stop until they had transported their bewildered proprietors out of sight of the audience as if they were machine legs with the steam turned on and weights on the safety valve how some went on the stage and wouldn't go off 
and how others went off and wouldn't go on until they were coaxed on by their agonized owners a long time after the queue came to tell how the red fire burned green and the blue fire would not burn at all how the call-boy got tipsy and was not forthcoming how the property man fell over the sheet-iron thunder and stuck his head into a pot of red paint which made him look like a modern edition of charles i with his head cut off how the grave-diggers got into the grave and couldn't get out how hamlet and laertes could hardly get in at all and how when they did get in they made the gravel fly how the wrong men came on at the wrong time and how as a general thing the right men didn't ever come on how guildenstern spoke ophelia's lines how horatio tried to speak one of hamlet's speeches and danced a frantic hornpipe with rage because he couldn't think how it began and how polonius couldn't speak at all and so went home how nobody could remember what shakespeare said and so everybody said what shakespeare didn't say and hadn't said and wouldn't have said under any circumstances how some of the men swore and some of the women wanted to but postponed it and how the butchery proceeded with many mishaps and multitudinous mistakes and how the audience applauded and cheered and laughed at the dismal tragedy evidently considering it the liveliest farce of the season are facts falsehoods and circumstances both real and suppositious which could not be compressed within the limits of a single volume hamlet was personated by an aspiring youth whose physical dimensions were not up to the army standard and who couldn't have gathered fruit from a currant bush without high-heeled boots on while the lady who represented his mother would have been compelled to stoop in order to pick pippins from the tallest apple tree that ever grew by the side of her illustrious son she looked perfectly capable of taking him up in her arms giving him his dinner after the usual maternal fashion and afterwards disposing of him in the trundle bed to complete his infant slumbers overdale explained that they had tried to get a bigger hamlet but that upon the whole he thought the little fellow would speak his piece pretty well taking into consideration the fact that in the dying groans he was supposed to have no superior wagstaff was totally ignorant of the plot and as from the obfuscation of the performers no one could have formed the slightest idea of what they were all talking about he seemed in no very fair way to find out anything about it the peculiar rendition of the story of the king of denmark was so uncertain that even john spout found it exceedingly difficult to tell where they were or how they would come out or what they intended to do next he was a little uncertain whether the queen would finally subdue hamlet or hamlet succeed in thrashing the queen in the closet scene especially the battle was conducted with such varying success that it was impossible to bet with any kind of certainty on the result or to prognosticate with reliability whether hamlet would knock his mother down with a chair and damage her maternal countenance with the heels of his boots or whether the old lady would succeed in her design which was evidently to conquer her rebellious offspring and give him a good spanking neither could tell whether laertes would kill horatio hamlet or the second grave-digger who stood behind the wing with his hands in his pockets and his breeches in his boots he was also a little undecided as to which was polonius and which was the king and when the player queen came in he thought it was only ophelia with a different coloured petticoat on john swore the ghost looked as if he hadn't had any dinner and said he was perfectly certain his ghost-ship had been refreshing his invisible bowels with a mug of ale behind the scenes because when he came on the last time with the broomstick in his hand he could see the foam on his whiskers 
one of the richest and most incomprehensible scenes ever witnessed on the modern stage was the final one between hamlet and the ghost who finding the weather chilly had done his best to mitigate his sufferings by putting on an overcoat hamlet trying to look fierce holding his sword at arm's length performing a kind of original fairy dance as he followed the spiritual remains of his ghostly father across the stage hamlet the mortal being about the size of a muttonham while his father the immortal supposed to be exceedingly ethereal was tall enough and stout enough for a professional coal heaver instead of an amateur ghost the intangible spirit moreover having one hand in his overcoat pocket to keep his fingers warm while in the other he flourished a short broomstick as if to keep his degenerate scion at a respectful distance were so ludicrous that john spout seized wagstaff's book and produced the sketch to be found at the beginning of this chapter and in the last death scene hamlet really won such honours as were never before accorded to mortal tragedian being by this time a little doubtful whom to kill he made an end of the entire company in rotation first he stabbed the king who rolled over once or twice and died with his legs so tangled up in the queen's train that she had to expire in a hard knot then he stabbed laertes who died cross-legged then he stabbed osric and not content with this he tripped up his heels and stood on his stomach till he died in such agony of indigestion then he tried to stick horatio but only succeeded in knocking his wig off and then turning up stage made extensive preparations for terminating his own existence first as everybody was dead and everybody's legs were lying around loose he had to lay them out of the way carefully so as not to interfere with the comfort of the corpses then he picked up all the swords and laid them cautiously in a corner so that the points shouldn't stick in him when he fell then he looked up at the curtain to see that he was clear of that then he looked down at the traps to see that he was clear of them and having at last arranged everything to his satisfaction he proceeded to go systematically through his dying agonies to the great satisfaction of the audience suffice it to say that when the spasms were ended and he had finally become a cold corpus his black tights were very dirty and had holes in the knees when the curtain went down hamlet was too exhausted to get up and instantly everybody rushed to the rescue those he had slaughtered but a few minutes before forgot their mortal wounds and hastened to the murderer with something to drink the king rushed up with a pewter mug of beer horatio presented the brandy bottle the ghost handed him a glass of gin and sugar the queen gave him the little end of a bologna sandwich and a piece of cheese the stage carpenter in his bewilderment could think of nothing but the glue pot the property man hastened to his aid with a tin cup full of rose pink and a plate full of property apple dumplings ingeniously but deceptively constructed out of canvas and bran while an insane scene shifter first deluged him with water and then offered him the bucket to dry himself with john spout who had been behind the curtain and witnessed this last performance immediately came out borrowed wagstaff's notebook and left therein his pictorial reminiscence of this scene as follows overdale had been profuse in his explanations of the many curious scenes and wagstaff had noted down his words carefully in his memorandum book once when the ghost tripped and fell through the scenery caving in the side of a brick house and kicking his spiritual heels through the belfry of a church in the background overdale said that this was ophelia who had been taken suddenly crazy and in her frenzy had imagined it necessary to hasten to the nearest grocery for a bar of soap to saw her leg off with polonius he explained was horatio 
and hamlet was a little boy who run on errands for the cook of the palace by which culinary appellation he designated the queen of denmark he said the plot of the piece was that the king wanted to marry the cook but her relatives objected to the alliance because his majesty hadn't got shirts enough for a change all of which was carefully written down by wagstaff with diverse alterations emendations additions and extemporaneous illustrations by john spout this last-named individual asserts to the present time that he cannot tell who were the most humbugged the people who paid their money and laughed at the play under the impression that it was a farce or the unfortunates who performed the play laboring under the hallucination that they were acting tragedy all were however satisfied that it was a kink of the elephant's tail which he has not yet uncurled in any city of america save gotham end of chapter eleven read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com